Hello, and welcome to Fireside with the VC. My name is Andrew Romans, and I'm very excited to have Yash Patel on the podcast. Yash is a general partner at Telstra Ventures. Yash, how you doing? Doing great, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to see you again. So um, I've spent a lot of time studying corporate venture capital, advising corporates on their corporate venture capital. And I think you guys have a very interesting story, you know, from birth to where you are in evolution. I think that almost every CVC I know is not a static thing, but they're always developing and changing. So before getting into that and some other fun topics, maybe give us a quick background about, you know, the parent company, Telstra. Like, who is Telstra? No, absolutely. And, and you know, the way I describe Telstra to a lot of folks in the U.S., if they're not familiar with the, with us, is we're sort of the uh, Verizon uh, of the Australia region. And, and when I say Australia, we also include kind of Asia Pac, as well as China and India, where Telstra has a bunch of uh, infrastructure assets. And so um, Telstra is considered sort of the premium network, um, you know, in, in the Australia region. You know, there's obviously other competitors out there like Singtel, which operates a brand uh, called Optus, as well as a, a few others. But Telstra generally, um, you know, invests a lot in its, um, you know, infrastructure, cell towers, 5G, et cetera, um, and, and kind of commands uh, sort of, um, you know, that sort of premium tier, um, both across consumers as well as multinational corporations that kind of use Telstra. So, so that's kind of Telstra at a super high level. Um, you know, it's a $25, $26 billion revenue company. Um, you know, strong free cash flow, like you can imagine, but always looking for growth, um, which is always, you know, the name of the game in, in sort of the telco industry. You know, I actually grew up in a telecom family where my parents worked at AT&T, my mom and my stepdad. And then I, that led me into a telecom startup. Um, so I've kind of been breathing the, the evolution of telecom from before deregulation to kind of where we are now. And when I think of Telcos used to own the yellow pages, directory of service. And, you know, when cell phones came out, there was people calling 10 times a day before there was Google in your pocket or to say, what's the phone number for the pizzeria even? And like all that went to Google, you know, and, and then owning the infrastructure assets and not taking advantage of, they were the only ones who knew your position, you know? So if you get off an airplane and you're in, Piccadilly Circus, they should be offering that guy a, a hotel room. So I think that um, as much as these telcos are powerhouses, 20 billion, 100 billion in revenue, I think they need venture capital more than almost anybody to, you know, figure out how to diversify ARPU, ACPU, lower ACPU, compete, even evolve into something different. Absolutely. And, and you know, Andrew, um, you bring up a really good point. You know, revenues don't mean much if you're sort of seeing, um, you know, stagnant or declining revenues um, uh, that are sort of decaying at a, at a faster rate um, than, than the rest of, you know, the industry. And so one of the things that, you know, telcos um, across the world, including Telstra, is really focused on the application layer, um, right. you know, on top of the network. So both on the consumer side, which a lot of these telcos have big businesses, but also um, very importantly on the enterprise side. So whether it's unified communications or it's um, mobile gaming and esports, um, how can we kind of participate um, further up the chain and monetize through kind of interesting new business model? That's where we as venture capitalists get really excited um, in, in sort of investing in, in the future um, beyond kind of the, uh, the infrastructure. And you're based in San Francisco, Silicon Valley. 
Telstra originates from Australia, but you know, operational across Asia Pac. What percentage of your capital is deployed in Oz compared to these other regions? Yeah, yeah. Let me give you some context on our fund, um, just just real quick to put it all in context. You know, we're a five hundred and sixty-five million dollar fund, and you know, the vast majority of it, seventy to eighty percent, um, you know, kind of comes naturally from Silicon Valley in North America, just because you kind of see a lot of innovation and, and just the sheer, you know, kind of deal flow volumes um, are, are larger. Having said that, we also have a presence in China. We have two folks in Shanghai, China, and then naturally have, um, you know, a, a few investment professionals and, uh, and and back office staff in Australia. So so we do cover those regions um, as well as Asia PAC uh, pretty expansively. Uh, but mm-hmm. by by far, you know, the, the vast majority of innovation we see kind of comes from uh, the U.S. And, and that's kind of reflected in our portfolio today where, you know, we've made about 70 investments, but um, about 70, 80% of that is uh, U.S., North America-based investments. And I think, um, you know, before we get to the evolution of how you guys have taken outside and kind of spun out a bit, um, part of the objective of CVC, corporate venture capital, is strategic returns or synergies with the BUs, the business units, and the startup. So if it works well... <laughs> the startup has not just a check that didn't bounce from you, but, and not just a promise from every VC has got a big network and gonna help, but you actually figure out how to deal with your staff in Melbourne and actually navigate through to BUs. What's an example of um, you guys actually taking a startup and helping it even internationally or or at all? Yeah, no, it's a a great point. And, And I think we take a lot of pride um, and, and I'll explain in a second how we look like now versus, you know, maybe seven years ago when I first joined. Um, but we take a lot of pride in driving strategic synergy revenue um, across our portfolio where it makes sense um, with Telstra. And we'll call it our, our kind of network of other kind of uh, partners in not only Australia, but Asia, Pac, Japan and kind of other geographies. And, um, you know, you know, we, we very much, you know, metric um, how much synergy revenue we drive across our portfolio. Uh, and, and usually that kind of comes in the form of Telstra either as a customer of a solution or more importantly, as the reseller of a solution. Uh, a great example of that, and you can talk to the CEO of Box, uh, Aaron Levy, was um, really our investment in Box. But more importantly, you know, the value he saw in us helping them crack kind of Asia Pac through kind of Australia. And so, you know, Telstra, um, you know, is obviously sort of a big customer and that's kind of the low hanging fruit. But, you know, we really helped um, in terms of, you know, reselling Box. Uh, you know, amongst a bunch of other solutions in the Telstra kind of suite, um, you know, on Telstra paper uh, in that region. And, and, you know, I think that in a lot of ways has been a really good model that Box has been able to use across different geographies in terms of the partnership kind of model go to market. So um, so we, we also did that with DocuSign, um, which was one of our kind of earlier investments. And, you know, we continue. When, when, when did you guys invest in DocuSign? Was that during Keith Crocs? watch yes yeah exactly exactly and so um uh mike dinsale was the cfo at the time i I, you know he's uh since gone but um you know it was a strategic round we invested in um you know right i think it was just uh around a billion or just before that you know just before that in terms of valuation but you know you had ourselves you had a few japanese telcos you had a few others on the strategic side that all kind of invested in this large kind of round which which was mainly focused on you know strategic expansion um, you know, for them. And so, 
that was really great. Um, you know, DocuSign ended up, I think they ended up poaching some of the Telser folks. So that didn't um, go totally uh, as planned. But in a, well, from, our, from our perspective, it went exceedingly well. Uh, I mean, Keith Kroc is one of these iconic entrepreneurs. If you're in his grace, there's a chance to even leave Telstra and work for him. He's uh, an amazingly contagious, dynamic, you know, founder. Um, you know, I, 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 he, he told me when he first joined how he was going to focus the company on just real estate and that for real estate, signing of the documentation electronically would be the mechanism to get across all industries. And why would anyone not use DocuSign? It's rude to ask me to print, scan, you know, you know, yeah. about it. At the same time, I remember saying to him, is this really a company? Because it looks like a, a feature. Like, how can you... How can you really grow DocuSign into a monster company when give me 15 minutes in the Ukraine and I could have something working? No, totally. As I remember as part of our, um, you know, kind of investment diligence, you know, I kind of looked at, along with our other partners, at least like 15 to 20 other small competitors. There's all these like PDF makers, a whole bunch of guys out there that were, you know, doing kind of signatures. Um, so it, it definitely is a crowded kind of saturated market. But I think um, the Trojan horse strategy of just cracking the real estate agents really kind of drove sort of an organic viral um, kind of element that spread to kind of other industries, right? So if you're sort of a, a real estate agent kind of having your clients kind of DocuSign, um, you know, those clients, you know, might work in, you know, financial services, might work in retail, might work in other kind of industries and, you know, really start to adopt something. I, one of the things I liked about DocuSign was sort of the consumerization of the product, which, you um, you know, in, in a lot of ways is, is kind of how you see, you know, the Snapchats, the Facebooks and the others of the world kind of grow is, is really kind of through uh, this, this kind of viral coefficient, this word of mouth effect. And I think DocuSign did a good job um, on the go to market side that gave us a lot of confidence that they could kind of, um, you know, expand not only in the US, but in Australia, Asia Pac and, and kind of beyond. And it's been, um, you know, very good return for us as a, as you can kind of tell with their market cap since. Oh, yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, takeaway there to move on to the next topic here is that uh, sometimes you look at things and say, well, this biotech thing, it's about the molecule. It's not about the management team. And that's not true. It's not about the molecule. It's always about the management team. And, you know, some people, you know, the wrong guy could screw up something that's taken off like a rocket. But I think Keith just kept powering you and anybody else to follow him into. This is not a commodity. Let me tell you why. And it's actually a brand. I mean, it's like you could you don't have to use Zoom, but um, you know it's a little bit like we pay for an office, we pay for Zoom, we pay up for DocuSign, you know. But he he's a he's a really fun guy. So Yash, tell me the story of when you started at Telstra Ventures quite a few years ago. Now, you were probably a full time employee of the corporation. You know, you might have had some sort of bonus that was tied to a DocuSign performance, but <coughs> the attempt of synthetic carry where you give the corporate venture capital, corporate employees bonuses tied to like a real two and 20 structure. Um, it's happening and it should be happening, but it's not easy to have happen. Maybe tell us the story of going from there to where and explain where, where they, how the fund is really an independent fund now. 
Yeah, no, it's uh, it's an interesting evolution. So when I first joined um, in the beginning of 2014, um, you know, we were very much a business unit um, within Telstra. And uh, we were actually, and we've moved around a bit, but we, you know, at various times were um, under the uh, strategic finance kind of organization within Telstra, usually reporting, um, you know, to the CFO of Telstra. Uh, but we did also have uh, a board um, that used to make decisions, um, you know, when we presented, you know, investments like DocuSign, Snapchat, um, Skills, et cetera, that would basically, um, you know, have to unanimously agree. And, and that board um, mm. included the CFO, uh, you know, at times the CTO and, and, you know, two or three other folks, head of enterprise sales at Telstra that would uh, kind of weigh in. And, and so, you know, our, our kind of whole process was, you know, we find an interesting company, um, you know, we're hoping for, you know, strategic synergy and, and business unit approval, which is, you know, one of the first pieces of criteria, but then we're also evaluating the returns and we are very disciplined about making sure we invest in companies um, that generate great returns. And so our fund was really um, an evergreen fund, um, you know, within this business unit in Telstra. So, you know, as soon as we got exits, we'd kind of reinvest that into the fund. Uh, but each year Telstra would commit a certain amount um, into our fund. And, you know, I think it ended up working uh, pretty well. Um, you know, I think for us, we didn't get too strategic, but we didn't get too financially focused. We were sort of a hybrid model in that we used to, um, you know, very much metric our strategic synergy, but also stay very disciplined on the returns. And, um, and then over the years, you know, we, we, we you know, realized, and, and I think Telstra realized that there was sort of this natural tension um, that was kind of happening between the business units who weren't necessarily focused on some of the, um, you know, Horizon three, four, five type of opportunities, three, five, 10 years out um, that we were focused on when we make our venture investments. And naturally so, right? You know, they've got earnings per share, they've got other MBOs they need to focus on and, um, and, and other metrics. And so, um, you know, I think at, at some point, you know, the tension became not too much, but it became um, a talking point between ourselves and, and Telstra where, you know, it sort of made sense for us to kind of um, become independent and, um, and, you know, do two things for Telstra. One, kind of help shift the burden of the capital that they were committing um, into our fund um, to someone else, but two, allow them to still benefit from the insights that we're driving through our venture investments. Uh, and so, you know, for them, the strategic synergy, we, we metric it, you know, each year, uh, and we've even got two or three folks, uh, even more actually now that are still focused on driving synergy across our portfolio. But you know, that doesn't move the needle for a multi-billion dollar organization. It's a great way to keep us um, honest and accountable and, and we love it. But for them, they want to see great returns. They're very financially focused, but they also want to see that, um, you know, there's engagement um, across Telstra. So one of the things I think I mentioned to you before was we send, you know, right now um, we're an independent fund and I can kind of talk about how we brought in a few external LPs, but we send an email out every week uh, throughout oh, yeah. all of Telstra, which is really interesting. And that's something we did seven years ago, but it drives a lot of engagement and kind of a discussion with a lot of the business unit leaders within Telstra, even to today. Yeah, you know, if I were, I think I said this to you when you first told me about that, if I was aware of that when I was writing my book on corporate venture capital, I would have said, this is a great idea that might look like a little bit of a pain in the ass at first, but is so well, well worth doing. If you can... I mean, even, even as our venture firm at 7BC Venture Capital and Rubicon, we've got like 57,000 people on our mailing list. And if you want to say, hey, we just invested in Box and give it a push and a bump and get other VCs interested, that's good. But what you're doing there is you're sending out some email every week 
it's going to how many people inside of the BUs? It's going to the top execs, right? So the top 50 to 100 kind of um, execs at Telstra um, who, who all see it and, and they share it with their kind of direct reports. So we right. get a lot of inbound from uh, very interesting folks that um, may not even be business unit leaders, um, but maybe kind of product managers, engineers, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, usually I'm focusing, the key thing there is communication. So if you've got good communication in a marriage, it's got a better chance than if you have poor communication, you know, and the same in business. And when you have physically people like you in San Francisco in Silicon Valley, and these guys all the way back in Australia, um, and you're running around with a lot of money and they may not really be paying themselves the biggest amount of money either, if they don't hear from you, they're just like, why did you invest in an esports gaming company? I just don't get it. Whereas if you can say, I just got back from this esports thing and I'm excited and this is the next box, they're along for the ride. I think that communication makes them understand just on every level, on every level, renewed support, less resistance. There's a lot there. No, totally. And, and you bring up esports and gaming. It's, it's such an interesting case study for us. Um, you know, about three, four years ago, we, we started um, really diving deep in, in sort of gaming and the esports ecosystem long before it kind of became more mainstream and then even more mainstream with COVID. Um, and, you know, at the time, you know, I think we, we kind of bucketed, you know, our investments in esports and gaming as maybe not necessarily immediately strategic, but eyes and ears um, in that, um, you know, we were still part of Telstra. And, and so we kind of had this 15, 20% allocation agreement with Telstra that, you know, these would be investments that weren't necessarily going to drive revenues or synergies right now, but could be interesting. Fast forward to today, I'm having um, multiple, multiple business unit conversations, very much interested in my portfolio around esports and gaming. Um, they're, they're looking to move into the application layer around kind of this area of interactive media in, in, a, in a much bigger way. And, um, and we've got some great case studies with skills and um, and Team Solo made one of the largest esports franchises that we invested in in the world uh, that we've been able to bring to them and um, and and kind of uh, you know drive their thought leadership there as well. Well, I think that ties together to your earlier point, Yash, which was that the nature of a publicly traded company, you know, struggling to get a multiple on their top line sales for the market cap, is driven by retained by by quarterly numbers. And it's that myopic, unpublicly traded, my employment contract of my compensation, mine meeting the CEO and the CFO and these other guys, is literally every three months. And for you to be out there talking about horizon two, three, forward thinking strategy, where we're not day traders, we're holding stocks sometimes for seven or more years. Um, it, it, I think it's very useful for to have you guys out there as eyes and ears of the emperor to be able to bring information in those weekly you know, reports, more in-depth reporting, and then show over time. People are pitching us today on stuff that's gonna exist in the future. We can see the future if you let us be really active. Absolutely, and, and I think what's given us a lot of credibility there is you know, we've been around for 10 plus years, um, you know, and, and you know, every three years, a business unit that may have rejected a deal we brought back will kind of come back to us and say, hey, this was actually really interesting. And in a lot of ways, and, and we don't explicitly track this, but we kind of do in a certain way, we kind of track our anti-portfolio in terms of companies that we were interested in um, when we were under Telstra, but for various reasons and, and very reasonable, you know, kind of reasons, 
the Telstra business unit leaders were not interested in. And, um, and we track that not so much because we want to rub it in their face. It's more, it's, it's a way of showing, Hey, we, we actually are, are proving this out and, um, and, you know, looking uh, at a lens that is three to five years out. So, you know, next time we kind of bring something, you know, to you guys, even though we're an independent venture fund right now, you know, they actually get really excited. They, they want to lean in and, and they want to get more skin in the game. And that's an exact example of evolution rather than we've got the model right. It'll never change. That's, that's just being a child. Th these things are always changing. So the anti-portfolio, I remember when I was an entrepreneur raising a couple hundred million of venture capital funding myself as the entrepreneur, I remember Bessemer had the anti-portfolio on their website. And I think Cisco, or no, 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 no. They, were, they would list what they passed on with a quote <laughs> from some idiot general partner who blew it. And they had something like, yeah. this guy, John Chambers is pitching me to invest in Cisco. Why would anyone ever need a gigabit router back when they had like 96 baud modem, you know, modems that like that, that shows how much they missed it. And they were laughing at it. I guess if you're Bessemer, you can laugh at it. For me, the anti-portfolio is getting less funny by the day. Like when I think of some of the deals I've missed out on, it's, it's quite upsetting. But um, for you to be able to rub their faces in things like Cisco, they may have missed out on and quote them back maybe helps drive the evolution of how your IC investment committee works. So I want to talk about investment committee, but before we do, just to be clear, you went from being on the balance sheet, evergreen fund employee or corporate employees to now bringing in outside matching capital. Can you disclose what you're yeah. talking about? I think you can, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so we um, ha now have four kind of limited partners um, and we basically, our, our two biggest LPs, our anchor limited partners are Telstra, which is still very supportive um, and uh, Harbor Best Partners out of Boston. And then they've got an right. office out of Hong Kong and, and we're working with those folks. So they are, they're one of the larger fund of funds and, and many of you kind of listening to this are probably familiar with them or might have investment from them. So they have been very supportive. Uh, and then we've got two other kind of Australian kind of financial funds um, also involved. And, uh, and, you know, we're investing out of this second fund, uh, $565 million fund, uh, but also looking to close our third fund very shortly. So I'm pretty excited about kind of uh, the future. So, so, so that's gone to a full blown two and 20 fund with Harbor Vest, massive institution LP matching the corporate anchor. And at least for now going with the Telstra Ventures as the brand, you know, with that continuity. On the IC, yeah. like in the old days, um, and I've been on some of these ICs where if the CTO or the head of R&D has got a voting seat on the investment committee and you're investing early stage, they look at that and go, oh, we're already, we're already working on it. Like they're insecure about NIH not invented here or, oh, I easily could make that technology without, there's no reason to pay up for that crazy valuation. And, or, or they're insecure that they don't have video on demand or whatever the hell it is already up and running. So I find it can be a little unhealthy to have them on, on board sometimes. On the other hand, after you're trying to push it into a BU to partner and have a commercial agreement and the guy's resisting because he doesn't want to tarnish his career with being a guinea pig, you can say, hey man, get in line because the CEO, the CFO, the CTO all signed their names on it don't let me out you for not going with the flow or something. What's your experience on IC at that level and where, where has it evolved to today? 
Yeah, so we started off as a um, as a you know five or six person kind of committee that required unanimous approval. And um, at various points in our time, I think we did have the CTO or somebody from the uh, product side that was usually sitting there. And um, and like many other corporates, you did have that natural kind of um, tension where you know you know the, the you know the issue would be you know Ericsson already covers this, and you know says Telstra has a very close relationship with Ericsson or. Um, you know, Microsoft already does this. Telstra has a close relationship with Microsoft, or we, we can build this internally, and um, and that is a very legitimate kind of concern. And so, one of the things that we did right before we spun out is, um, even though we were kind of still required uh, to have you know the Telstra BUs, or, sorry, the Telstra Investment Committee kind of be unanimous in their approval, we internally as partners, we've got six partners, including myself, we used to all vote on it um, and kind of include that in our memos. Um, so that we could show continuity post kind of our uh, spin out in that, you know, we actually um, had a different kind of method of, uh, you know, approving an investment. We don't need um, unanimous approval. We just need sort of a effectively a, a majority approval. And out of the six. Out of the six, exactly, exactly. Okay, so for the Chelstra Ventures team, you're a general partner. If you guys get more than half voted, you can push it through. Yeah, generally. It be that gener forceful. Yeah, that's generally how we, um, uh, you know, you know, set it up. And uh, we have a very strong belief that the best investments tend to be the most controversial ones. And so yeah, that's right. we, we do not, um, you know, in, in fact, sometimes we get a little bit, you know, freaked out if we see everyone um, unanimously rejecting or approving something in that, you know, is there something, is there some perspective we're missing? And so diversity of thought is super important to us um, in terms of driving returns. You know, I mean, a quick story on that is that um, I love that statement. Sometimes the most contentious um, IC investment committee decisions were the ones that were the biggest outliers. Because if you're, if you're saying let's offer voice over IP to the enterprise, that's like not a new idea, but you know, you could see it'll work. We all get behind it. The unit economics are there. Is it really gonna be a blowout thing? I once, and, and everyone will think I'm super stupid hearing me say this, but at the time, I think my stupidity was acceptable. I was talking to, I was meeting with Global IP Sound, Gyps, who did the voice codec for Skype before Skype introduced any plans of monetization and I was looking at it saying, how do you make money here? And they go, well, if Skype ever starts to charge for the free service, we get a rev share. And I was like, well, when are they gonna do that? He goes, no, no, no plans have been announced. And it, and it eventually became Skype out, get a phone number. It was murdering the calling card business and murdering the long distance plans on phones and everything. But I was just like, well, I don't see the revenue stream. All I see is the burn. And then Gips got acquired for a huge chunk of Skype, and it would have just been life-changing for me. Um, but 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 so it's just to say that when it's really obvious, it's maybe not that disruptive or interesting. When it's really not obvious, you're either going to have a tough time getting it through, or someone's going to really be kicking the other guy later for talking, yeah. voting it, voting it down. You yeah, know. we have it. We have an interesting story about Zoom, basically, where you know we we were looking at one of the C or D or rounds for Zoom, uh, maybe even E. But um, you know, we kind of brought it to our unified communications guys, and, and this at this time we were part of Telstra, and um, you know, Telstra has a very close relationship with Cisco, and you know, Cisco WebEx was you know you know good enough of, as a product, but I don't think they or even ourselves could have imagined 
the kind of consumerization of the product, the viral kind of growth that we kind of talked about with DocuSign earlier that would happen with Zoom to kind of basically just bring, you know, video conferencing that doesn't suck, as, as Eric likes to say. And so, um, you know, we have a great deal of respect for Eric, but I would kind of consider that as part of our kind of anti-portfolio. Um, and But it was one where, you know, I think it was a bit controversial and, uh, and it kind of went the other way for us. Um, unfortunately, but um, it's, there's plenty of examples of that. Well, I think that's part of the, part of the skill set to be very successful in corporate venture capital is to do all the work of financial independent BC does, and then do all this other work of being able to sell into the, the BUs and the corporate and the IC to get them to say, you know, that, that your story about Zoom is uh, don't get fired. You never get fired for going with big blue that if you buy an IBM mainframe, even though deck was half the price and 10 times better digital, people were still buying the crappy IBM mainframe with a maintenance agreement that was costing more than the deck machine um, because they just don't want to get fired for going with Microsoft or going with Cisco, you know, you know, like you described. So as it stands today, you guys are off balance sheet, Harbor Vest, two other, financials in there, um, anchored strongly by Telstra. But what about the AC? So even now, when you're completing an investment, despite the diversified LP base, you guys have to have a majority within the eight of Telstra Ventures, but it's still, do you still need sign-off from so inside we don't, Telstra? No. So we never need any sign-off from um, you know, Telstra or any of our LPs, we operate very much like a Sequoia or Bessemer or Sapphire um, kind of operate. And, and, you know, that is, um, you know, you know, very beneficial to both of us. Um, now, obviously, if there's an area where Telstra has deep expertise around kind of the networking uh, layer, you know, um, or, or something that, you know, we actually would rely on Telstra's engineers for diligence, as an example, which would give us more confidence in the investment, well, we'll absolutely rope them in. But from our perspective, we're independent. And um, even if, you know, Telstra may not like the investment, but we like the returns and we think this is where the, the world is going, you know, we would still, you know, make that investment. But I think Telstra has a healthy level of respect based on our track record where, um, you know, it's uh, it's very, very good. And, and the same goes for Harbor Vest and our two other kind of financial LPs. Yeah, I think I think that when, when you start hitting blockbuster hits, balls out of the park, the, the IC gets a little bit looser with you. The, the, I mean, a, a, and there's a lot of examples of that um, where that's the reason the whole CBC worked is because their first investment was a billion dollar exit very quickly, you know, you know, very quickly or something. But I think CBCs that like it used to be that you had 20% eyes and ears of the emperor. And so 80% had to fit somehow into the Lego blocks. I think that if a corporate is allocating capital year on year into a fund that takes a few years to maybe really get that lucky return, they should just say, look, as long as I get one strategic thing a year or one strategic thing every two years, as long as you're paying us back 5X cash on cash multiple um, and you're performing well, you know, why should they demand that every single investment that gets funded by the CBC has to directly lead to a commercial agreement or something, you know, but yeah, my experience, they're not, they're not thinking like I'm describing. They're saying, what are you doing investing in that more self-driving cars? We're Ford, you know, we yeah. just want to see direct automotive connection. 
No, totally. And if you were forward, I would say, hey, you should be looking at interactive media, right? So when this stuff go, gets totally automated, you've got one of the biggest screens and, and potentially CPUs that you can kind of, you know, work around with. And, and there's a whole bunch of kind of other areas uh, that you could kind of look at investing in. And, and actually, the auto guys that I've talked to are actually looking at that in a much bigger way. Sure. But, um, but, you know, to your point, um, you know, for us, like, you know, the synergy is important, but that weekly email is probably the most important thing, um, you yeah, know, because no, no, I, I, that I conversation, yeah. I think yeah. that's super smart. Totally, totally. And so um, you're right. A lot of CBCs don't, uh, or at least the corporates don't necessarily, um, you know, you know, kind of think like that, but it's, it's really just a matter of, uh, you know, proving that you can kind of generate great returns and, and getting one or two really interesting strategic deals done per year, and then building that credibility and that relationship so you can kind of win that trust over time. And that's yeah. that's exactly sort of what we did. We would never kind of do this seven, eight years ago. I think we had DocuSign, we had Box, we had a whole bunch of others, CrowdStrike on the cybersecurity side, and then big commerce on the e-commerce side, skills just you know, about to go public for their SPAC. Um, so there's just like a, a real kind of track record there that um, both from a returns and synergy perspective, we definitely kind of pay attention to. Yeah, and I think I think independence is good, and that successful financial return should calm down the CFO, and even calm the. C I think the CEO often says, "What's more important to you, you know, uh, financial returns or synergy, strategic returns?" And the CFO is saying, "You lose money, I'll cut you off." And the CEO is like, "Don't worry about losing money. We're a hundred billion pound gorilla." I just want to get into the next new big thing. But I think that it's important as you go for independence to never lose sight of the fact that you have access to those BUs. Like you said, you can run something up the flagpole and leverage their domain expertise, which is beyond what your management fee could even afford to pay for. Like these people, you got smart people on the payroll that you don't have to pay that sort of have to answer your email, you know, a little bit. I think that's I think that's genius. And if you can get, you know, if you could get some payment app on, you know, Telstra's the largest telecom operator in Australia. That's the mobile internet and the fixed internet. If you could push something out, then you're doing more than a lot of other VCs are doing to help the company. Totally, totally. And that kind of um, promise uh, really moves the needle uh, for a lot of our portfolio companies, even, you know, with Telstra as a, as a, you know, as a customer, right? So, I mean, Telstra as a customer just validates, gives credibility. They can now go to, you know, AT&T, Coke, Pepsi, whoever these other large conglomerates are and say, hey, we've we've gone through the, you know, ringer with Telstra and, and Telstra's engineers and product folks in Silicon Valley and beyond generally get um, a lot of credit for being forward thinking uh, in terms of adopting new technologies. So we, we benefit from that as a independent venture fund but we still have that relationship and we, we do cherish that. So that's, that's really important, even if it doesn't end up being real strategic synergy revenue. So, so, you know, we we're focused on synergy revenue right now, but we're not totally focused to the point where, you know, if we miss it by a few million, you know, each year, you know, we're going to say that was a failure. No, that's absolutely not the case. Um, you know, the conversations and the innovation that gets fed into the roadmap for Telstra at the corporate level that is a result of our investments is where I've, I've taken most pride in. Well, Yash, I wanna close on some questions about uh, stage and sector. So anyone listening to this knows when to uh, attempt to get your attention of their next financing round. So uh, you guys are investing fairly late stage, right? What, what, what stage, what's your sweet spot 
for investing? What's a typical check size? What's a typical round size that you're participating in? Yeah, no, great question. So we started off doing a lot of late stage stuff, but we really um, uh, find our sweet spot at the Series B stage. So, you know, we like to lead or co-lead investments at the Series B, usually writing five to $10 million uh, US dollar checks. Um, and, you know, we'll, uh, we'll also participate in these larger growth rounds, you know, with at least $5 million. I think we just want to have enough skin in the game and be able to add value um, in ways that uh, move beyond kind of the capital that we kind of talked about earlier. So you're not, you're not overly concerned with ownership percentage targets, but more of, I want to get in? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think we've started to move to the Series B just because we found it a bit frothy at the later stages. And now you've got SPACs, you've got all sorts of investors. And, um, and we found that, you know, getting in at 100 to 200 pre, I'm just throwing out that number, but, you know, as a Series B kind of average, um, you know, generally tends to be a good, you know, path to a 5x plus type of return if there's, you know, real revenues, um, you know, et cetera. So if I were to quantify it, you know, this is by no means a hard rule, but like, let's say 5 million ARR kind of seeing 3X year on year growth on the enterprise side or 10 million daily active users about to monetize on the consumer side, that's kind of our, our sweet spot. And, and we can, you know, really pour gas on the fire, not only with capital, but really trying to get you guys plugged in, um, these entrepreneurs plugged into Asia Pac and, and Australia. Yeah, I think, um when I hear entrepreneurs complain about, I don't wanna even be introduced to a corporate because their investment committee is dysfunctional and, and I won't get money out of them fast enough. I say, take the meeting anyway, if they're willing to meet you, because worst thing that happens is they help you navigate this labyrinth that's halfway around the world and get you an actual potential sale. Um, and he might even be pushing for sale as a favor so he can get the investment done. Like, don't say no to that. If, if you're rushing to invest in their company and they don't want your money, they can say no, right? Which they probably wouldn't do by the time you're ready to invest. No, absolutely. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You get a biz dev deal out of it, but not a venture deal. I mean, that's only gonna help your financing, um, you know, as well. So, you know, absolutely agree. And, and you know, I would say that um, I think certain corporate venture groups uh, have gotten really good at um, improving how fast uh, their turnaround is in terms of, right. You know, initial meeting to term sheet stage to actually wiring the money. Obviously, we don't have that issue being independent and being able to kind of write our term sheets. But, um, you know, a lot of good venture groups on the corporate side are, are kind of getting, um, you know, up to speed and tuning that whole process in terms of yeah. feedback. Uh, so, so, you know, don't be afraid. I often say that corporate venture capital is like an airplane cockpit and there's a million little settings. And if you go into the cockpit, you could probably work with the team to get the settings a little more optimal, you know, and, 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 and not a, you're definitely not a dictator, right? You, if, if you, you don't, no one's going to walk up to Jeff Bezos and say, listen, Bezos, this is how I'm going to change everything. And you're going to get in line. He's probably going <laughs> to, he's probably got some control there. Right. Yeah. I think that that's how it is with corporates that, you know, you can't always get what you want, but sometimes you get what you need. And if you're a little patient, you know, you could do what you guys have done. You can move from being on the balance sheet and all that IC to having all the benefits without, you know, kind of the downside. I think it's great. Yeah, yeah. And the only thing I'd emphasize is, you know, our route, there wasn't a lot of precedent for us to kind of look up to. I think Sapphire uh, or SAP Ventures had done it really well. And, um, you know, a few of us have some really good um, relationships with folks there. But, um, you know, it's just all about, you know, going to the Telstra corporate or, or your own corporate 
you know, each year and, and just presenting new data, new kind of credibility and new traction. And over time, you know, it will make more and more sense, um, you know, as you kind of, uh, you know, build that kind of uh, credibility. So it's, um, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. It, it never happened overnight for us. You know, it was three, four, five years of just kind of talking to them, bringing up the idea, you know, planting the seeds. And then eventually the stars kind of align and, um, and it might be a CEO change. It might be something else, but, um, you know, there will be a change event that, you know, you, you will be in a good position to kind of take advantage of. You know, I, Yash, I tell the story of Sapphire going from SAP to Sapphire in my book. And it's really because I was good friends with Jörg Siebert, who came into my office and said, we just went from on balance sheet to $324 million or some specific number like that with a full two and 20. And I said, well, good for you. What's next? And he goes, well, now we have to diversify the LP base. Because if we don't diversify the LP base, we could be out of business the minute there's a change of CEO or an economic downturn. So that, and then and said, and then what's next? Because then we want to drop the name uh, because we don't want people to think that they can't sell to Oracle if they take funding from SAP. So do you know what the first three letters of Sapphire Ventures is? Yeah, SAP, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they're still in the Hillview building, you know, they're in the same, they, they operate out of their offices in both London and in the Valley. I've been in them both, but um, I think it's smart. I think, I think it's cute that Sapphire has that legacy connection to SAP because SAP is like the best tech company in all of Europe. So totally, totally. And and they they've actually pushed that whole envelope. Um and, and I have a lot of respect for those guys. I mean they launched uh, a Sapphire Sport, which was a hundred million dollar venture fund backed by a whole bunch of um US and, and international sports teams and owners. Um and you know they're they're really kind of pushing the envelope across a lot of different areas that they're choosing to invest in. And so that kind of um, kind of linkage through the name back to their legacy, um, you know, I can I could see ourselves doing something similar um, in the future, right? Um, so you know, I don't think we'll be Telstra Ventures forever, um, and you know, we'll we'll kind of think of something uh, equally as uh, as interesting <laughs> when we do inside inside of um, inside of Australia, it could be a liability, but out, like like for example, Verizon Wireless Ventures is really a stupid name in the United States because. The minute you like, like I took twenty-seven million from Rich McGinn at Lucent, as, as an investment into my company, and I had a great relationship with Chambers at Cisco until he heard that news, and then he said, "You're the enemy." So all of a sudden, the door was shut to doing anything with Cisco, and we had married with an irreversible action to Lucent, which practically went bankrupt during the time, like their stock price went from sixty-two to like three dollars or four dollars during those days. Um, if you take money, if you do, you know, if you take money from Verizon Wireless Ventures, you may shut the door to Sprint, T-Mobile, and AT&T within the United States. If you take money from Telstra Ventures, all those telcos will say, oh yeah, I know people at Telstra, they got really smart engineers, like you said. That, that is an endorsement. It's in no way a liability. So I think there's times that it'll serve you really well. And in your case, not too many times it doesn't serve. Most people are kind of pissed off at the phone man for you know not showing up on time. So there's a little bit of that legacy post office vibe sometimes, but I'm sure you guys will get it right. Wilson Yash, thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you offline about some deals and uh, I really appreciate you making time.